tackle just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary. You're listening to the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane. And I'm Dale Clancy. And this week, our special guest is the former Scotland and Lions brought forward Peter Wright. And as you'd expect from someone who's renowned for his very forthright views and no-holds-barred attitude, it's a fascinating listen as he talks to us in depth about his experiences as both a club coach and an international player. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Dale, as always, we'll start the podcast with the tight five topics and no better place to start than last weekend when Scotland found themselves in Florence, unusual place for them to be, for an Autumn Test International. But this, of course, the start of the new Autumn Nations Cup. And in the end, it was a tough examination for Gregor Townsend's side. Yeah, I think it was always going to be. I think when we discussed it last week, it was going to be an interesting game. Italy, you know, they have the capabilities of turning the heat up when they really want to. And certainly they played aggressive rugby in the first half and probably frustrated Scotland. A lot of penalties, like discipline was really, really poor in the first half. But in the second half, Scotland started to grow. The team, especially Stuart Hogg, was quite vocal about saying that they got a real kick up the backside from Gregor Townsend at half time. Came out a little bit more structured, a little bit more directed. They did get the bounce of the ball on some occasions, but ultimately just put in the hard yards and came away with a win and you can see when you look at the different teams in terms of looking ahead towards the Lions the likes of Chris Harris is in there there's rave reviews about him on social media about how every time he plays for Scotland he gets better and better so players like that like Stuart Hogg Dunkey Weir as well playing well at 10 which I think we all thought he was going to it was a good first out and bonus point win and then we can move on to the next game Duncan Weir's an interesting one. I felt that in the first half, he looked like a player that was trying to work his way back, having been in the international wilderness. But by the second half, he was a transformed player. He was far more settled. His distribution, his confidence, the whole package seemed to improve during the course of the game. And certainly the, the second 40 minutes, I thought there was a marked improvement there. So again, he's in a position now battling for that 10 jersey with uh, Jakob van der Waalt be now eligible to play for Scotland as well. So, you know, interesting dynamics there that you have two very experienced fly halves out injured, but two very different fly halves that can offer something new. Yeah, and I think Vandervelt probably has nothing to lose in terms of coming into the fold and the gloves are pretty much off. He just has to try and impose himself in the squad and, and he'll probably be feel a little less pressure because he's not looked at as being the answer to 10 because we've got two going on three really good 10s. So you feel that at Dunkey Weir, it might put a bit of pressure onto him, which it, it's kind of fight or flight. He might grow from it again, putting more steady performances or it might be a fact that Vandervelt does get an opportunity and you know you just look at the flexibility in that squad and, and see where the people are talking about moving kind of Hastings out and Russell out you maybe do have that opportunity for an opening at 10 for one of these players if there is going to be that reshaping but it's interesting going into the Six Nations you want to build that big squad round about good quality players especially in that 10 position we're really blessed at the moment to have three going on for those sort of players in that position vying for that jersey Talking of Van der Waal, his club side Edinburgh were in action again on Monday evening, this time over in Dublin, the toughest of assignments going to the RBS Arena to take on the relentless Leinster. And Leinster scoring eight tries, it was a bit of a baptism of fire for a 
relatively inexperienced group of Edinburgh players. Yeah, you look at the result, it's a heavy, heavy defeat. Again, a lot of young players coming through and getting game time. You see Rory Darge came off the bench. These sort of players who were playing for Scotland in their 20s last year, they're not going to be seasoned pros. They're not going to be the finished article at the moment. And yes, at this moment in time, you're looking at Edinburgh getting heavy defeats. But to be fair, if you're an Edinburgh fan, you've probably been used to that for the last few years and before Cockerell came in. So, you know, it's, it's probably, again, a little transitional period, but it didn't do any damage to the likes of Sutherland, who's grown as a player, the likes of Toulouse as well. These players, they all came in young. They've earned their stripes and then they've went on to better things. And it seems like the Scotland environment's a really nurturing environment anyway, in terms of they do seem to try and get the best out of the players. And you just think that players like Darge, Chamberlain, these players coming through, Dan Gamble as well, these players getting game time, even against Leinster away, it's only going to do them the world of good. And hopefully if they've got the mindset, they will try and improve as they go on. But it is another heavy defeat and it's another week where they have to go kind of back to the drawing board and see where they can try and make things tick. We now know, of course, the European fixtures for both Edinburgh and Glasgow. The draw was made some time ago now, but the fixtures have been released for the mini pool stages. And Edinburgh take on La Rochelle and Sale. They're home to La Rochelle and away to Sale just before Christmas. And then the reverse fixtures, the middle to end of January. For Glasgow Warriors, they're away to European champions Exeter on Sunday the 13th of December. And then six days later, home to Lyon. And then the reverse fixtures then are played again in the middle weeks and final weeks of January. Some really mouth-watering European ties for both sides. And it will be very interesting by the time these matches are played to see who's available for both Edinburgh and Glasgow and how strong they can be. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think at the moment, both those pools for Edinburgh and Glasgow seem really daunting, but I think when you get the players back into the fold and they've got their stronger teams, then you know they've, they've got more of a chance in those pools. Out of the two pools, you'd probably rather be Edinburgh. I think Edinburgh do, at the moment, have the stronger squad out of the two Scottish teams, especially when they're fully fit, and I think that's probably quite a good competitive pool for them. I think Sale, we were chatting about off-air, but I think Sale are a team... They, Perhaps with Saracens now being out of this competition and out of the Premiership, you wonder where their loyalty is a lie and you wonder whether they're going to take this competition as an opportunity to progress far in it or whether they'll try and concentrate on some domestic glory in the Premiership down in England. So it's going to be interesting. Glasgow Exeter have had a couple of cracking games over the last few years in European competition and again if Glasgow can get going and get ticking they, they could give Exeter a good game but you've got to say that like Glasgow they start that pool big outsiders because Exeter for the last few months especially have been really formidable in, in wrapping up the double in European and the Premiership as well Dale there's no escaping the effects of Covid on all aspects of society and perhaps sadly no surprise that Covid has once again had a, quite a significant impact on the Autumn Nations Cup with the, the Fiji France game cancelled of course there's no opportunity for those sides to play in the competition but again it's a, an, an illustration of all the good plans all the best paid plans but when it comes to, to Covid there's constant uncertainty over whether something can come to pass or not. It's unfortunate for Fiji, it would have been a good platform for them to get a first game against France, who are on the back of a really good win against Ireland. It would have been a really entertaining game. It's a reality check more than anything else. I think the bubble of rugby and, and seeing some nice competitive rugby on back on the TV, and then all of a sudden this rears its head and you go, oh, it's still a precarious position and people have to be sensible. And The Fijians, I think, will be disappointed they didn't get the opportunity to play. 
And of course, the Super Six sides, the club rugby sides, must proceed with great caution as each week goes by and follow government guidelines. I know that there was talk of perhaps one or two training sessions in different parts of the less affected areas in the country. Some training sessions taking place during the course of, of this week. But uh, those are going to be, they have to be few and far between because the return of Super Six in the club game must be still some way off. It's frustrating at the moment because you want to see a wider outreach of rugby at the moment for all players, be it professional, semi-pro, amateur players. And at the moment, we're not ready for that. Our country is not at the stage where we can roll that out yet. And the announcements this week about the, the changing in the tier system just again, just kind of make certain areas reevaluate. And And some teams, although they're maybe trying to maintain training and trying to keep going with a reasonable level of structure to support their players and also keep them fit and keep their well-being, things are going to have to get revisited. And it's it's unfortunate, you know, there's different areas in the country who aren't affected as much. But it's, again, it's, it's the current climate we live in. People are having to be adaptable and it's just being sensible and making sure that you make the right decisions and you, and you put the right procedures in place and yeah it's, I feel like it's going to be a while until we do see any club rugby and it's unfortunate because club rugby is probably the thing that I love the most out of all of this and it's going to be a while till we see it come back in any real format That's this week's Tight 5 Topics Tackling Scottish Rugby On to this week's guest and Dale somebody that you know very well as a coach you've played under him as a enthusiastic follower of the game you've listened to his very honest and forthright and direct views on the game whether it be at club level professional level international level we were delighted when peter wright accepted our invitation to join us on the tackling scottish rugby podcast and wanted to start off by asking him for his own thoughts on the plight of Scotland's club game. Yeah, I mean, for me at the moment, it's quite interesting the club scene because I know I know England have decided to not have an amateur club tournament this year. They, they've cancelled it completely. I think they were initially going to cancel it till January. Since then, they've now decided that they're not going to bother having one. There's an argument for Scotland to do that as well, but my thoughts are that well, I was with GHK, so we were back training. And the lift that was giving the guys just to come and train and the, and the thought that they might get games, well, initially at the end of October, now it's sort of January time, was, was what was actually keeping a lot of these guys going. You know, there was a lot of guys living on their own, living in flats in Glasgow on their own. So so my thoughts are that if, you know what, if we can get a month out of playing rugby in, maybe in the summer or, or a couple of months or let's really take on the challenge of getting the rugby up and starting again and maybe if we start playing in April or May time it might maybe force the SRU to maybe change to, to sort of better weather rugby or summer rugby if that's what you want to call it because that for me is the way forward getting to, to help I think help bolster the club game now there is there is issues with it obviously there's clashes with certain things sevens maybe being one but obviously some of the facilities that clubs use private schools they can't use them in the summer because of cricket and athletic but because you don't need floodlights you can just you, you almost just need a piece of grass to play the game so maybe in a weird way this horrible time with COVID maybe get the SRU to look at the season structure in a different way and if we can get a month six weeks two months of rugby this season then then I would I would certainly go for it because I think the lift that would give the players from a mental health point of view in particular would be massive and Peter they've already put in place a model or a series, a range of models that would allow a lot of regional rugby to be played to limit the amount of travelling between parts of the country, which a lot of players, I think, returning to the sport would very much enjoy as, as well. And that, again, touches on a point that you raised there about a chance for Scottish rugby to 
address the, the league system, address the, the time of year the games are played, and maybe come up with something a little bit different and innovative. Yeah, it's times like this that we need to look at it from a, a different perspective. Yeah, the, the fixtures that came out wasn't a National League scenario, it was, a, it was a kind of regional. At GHK, we were going to be playing Hillhead, Jordan Hill, Glasgow Ackies, White Craig, so teams that were all kind of local rivals, which I think is a, is a great way to do it. That's what you sometimes miss with National League rugby is that you, you, you often, depending on what league you're in, you sometimes don't get that opportunity to play your, your nearest rivals. And I don't think that's good for rugby or, or sport in general. I think playing against teams that are next door to you in the local towns, yeah, it's fun. You know, it's, it's a good way to do it. Uh, and maybe the SR, you can look at that and say, well, do we need to be, how many National Leagues do we need to have? We tried it before, you know, Stuart, we tried it a number of years ago. I was on the working party where we went regional. Uh, in fact, I think I, I coached Peebles at the time because we, we got promoted. Uh, Dale, I think Dale was captain. And we we, we got promoted. We, we beat Howard Fife with a really controversial penalty that won us the game that got us promoted. I think we were in the B League and you went up. But, you know, th- there's an argument for that. But the, what, what we found difficult with that was that clubs were really for it. So... You would sit down with clubs and they would say, yeah, this is a really good idea. But once they found out where they were in the actual league, then they became, well, actually, we don't want to be here. And so they, they were for it in one minute, but once they actually found out where they were in the sort of pyramid system, they then decided that actually, you know what, we're, we're not for this. And one meeting, a club would be up for it. The next meeting, they would send a different representative to the meeting and they wouldn't be up for it. So that, that's the difficulty you've got. There's too much self-interest within Scottish rugby, within the clubs. Every club wants to survive, which you completely understand. But, but sometimes we've got to have the balls to, to just look at the big picture and see what's going to keep Scottish club rugby going. Because at the moment, after this in particular, it, it looks as though clubs are going to struggle. And, you know, could we lose clubs? I'm, I'm sure we actually could. And, and weirdly, you know, Mark Dodson will be that disappointed in that. He, he's quite keen to reduced it doing it sort of 50, 60 clubs as he's, he's came out and said a number of times. So yeah, so there's there's a lot of potential there but we've got to have the people in place to drive and that's, that comes to your council members and your president to drive something forward that can suit Scottish club rugby, amateur rugby. I think there is an avenue now with obviously with the regional side of things. It's almost now with the introduction of Super 6 that there is more of an appetite for local the border league's been going for a while but there's no reason that that can't really be replicated across the country and then truncating into an elite competition or a finals competition so the good club teams then still get the competitive rugby after that Peebles for example that you used to coach they've never won the border league they've never even beaten Melrose but there might be more of an appetite to do that do you think that would work nationwide do you think that would work in in Caledonia remember we beat Hoyt bro remember we beat Hoyt because I wasn't playing well The downside with regional rugby is that you can get real mismatches. That, that's the advantage of national rugby is that you get to your level. But the, the downside with regional rugby is that, you know, club A could be 100 times better than club B. And and so does that keep players interested? But if you, just as you say there, Dale, if you, if you have a, a system where it's nationwide, so you have the four regions and the top two teams play off in a sort of final and maybe the second, you know, the, the next batch of teams play off. So eventually... And again, I know it goes from being regional to then national, but I think if you say to clubs, look, you're going to play the majority of your games are going to be regionalised, but you're going to play four games at the end of the season, 
potentially against teams from other districts. I think clubs would buy into that because they'd get the buy-in and the, the advantage of local derbies and that's a financial advantage because more people will come and watch. You sell hospitality, I think, a lot better to a local derby. And then, you know, you get that sort of grand final sort of time where you, you get to play against the, the, the same teams of your level in other regions. And, and if you're only travelling out with your region maybe four times a season, then club treasurers in particular are quite happy with that because they're not having to spend too much money on and buses. And that's going to be the key, I think, is how do we cut down how much money the clubs spend to try and recover from the pandemic? And that's something. And, and what's disappointing me is we're not really getting a lot back from Murrayfield. They, they have put that consultation out. And this is what they came up with. The, the Premiership we're going to play against each other and everything else is going to be regional. But I think we need something to look at, well, maybe something over four or five years and say, right, this is what we're going to do for four or five years. Instead of doing it for a year or two years and then clubs moaning and do something else and something else and something else. It's just having maybe a strategy or a long-term plan in place, which I'm not sure we've got that. One thing I wanted to ask you, Peter, do you think that players may be in a position to start earlier than a lot of clubs will want them to start because the look at restrictions on the number of spectators allowed into club rooms and allowed into club bars and say, well, we don't want a competitive season to start until we can get the maximum number of people in here to maximise their revenue potential. They don't necessarily want a halfway house when they can have restricted numbers of spectators in and games played because they would feel that that would be a, a lost revenue opportunity. Yeah, I think you've got to look at it. You probably have to look at it two ways and which is more important than the other. I think you have got to look at it from the financial side, but I think you've just got to look at it from the general rugby side as well. And you know, the, the the lift, when we were talking about starting at the, at the end of October, you could see them smiling and really looking forward to that because these guys didn't realise this, but rugby's a big part of their life. Because I've done it a lot over the years, you don't appreciate just how important it is. I mean, you've not got it. A lot of the guys said to me at GHK that, that they were lost on a Saturday without, you know, going, they're lost on a Tuesday and a Thursday, they've got no training to go to, then they, they don't have a game. So for me, I think the most important thing is getting the rugby started. And I think if you get the guys playing, you know, there's potentially minimum 30 guys every game. Obviously, your subs, you've got more than that. But from a mental health point of view, from a physical well-being point of view, you're starting to improve that part. And, and I think that's the most important part for me. Obviously, if you speak to a club treasurer or a club president, they'll say that's quite important. But actually getting people into the clubs is important as well. But if we can start playing rugby without fans and without people getting the club, I, I think we've got to go for it. You know, I think we've got to show that we're keen we're positive about getting the sport back on. We're going to turn around and say, well, we're, we're not going to start playing games until we meet people in the club. And I, I think that just sends out the wrong message. It's certainly, without question, the most uncertain and most peculiar time that you'll have experienced either as a player or as a coach. But just looking at the overall experiences you've had within the club game as a coach, Peter, because you, you must have been coaching now for the best part of 18, 20 years within the, the Scottish game. Just... Remind listeners of, of some of the highlights that you've had as a coach because you've, you've taken a, a lot of teams to new heights and, and enjoyed a lot of success with different clubs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I mean as, as a player, I was always keen to help the coaches when I tell them how to do things and stuff. So it was a kind of <laughs> natural progression, I think, going from playing and the coaching. It's always something I enjoyed. I always, when I was the national team, you were always getting asked to go and do stuff at clubs and, and the expectation was you just kind of go and stand and just kind of watch. But I was always keen to get involved with doing stuff with the kids. and So it was a natural, for me, it was a natural progression to go into coaching. And I think I first started coaching about 1999, 2000, something like that. I stopped playing around about that time for, uh, because of a knee injury. My first coaching gig was Burnham Your Second in the late 90s. And it was a weird season because Sean Lenin and Ian Paxton were coaching Burnham Your Firsts. 
and I was coaching Burnham your settings and I was still contracted to play for Edinburgh and uh, so I was doing a little bit of coaching while playing with Edinburgh and I, then I got my knee I had problems with my knee and I went to the, the, the surgeon and he told me to stop playing but it was just one of those things I was going to be absolutely my knees were going to be dead by the time I was 40 so I was 30 years old at that point so I took up coaching with Burnham your seconds went unbeaten I think we won 13 in a row or something like that and we, we won the second 15 league it was fantastic but the downside to that was that Burnham your first got relegated so that was the first year that Burnham were under Sean Lanine and Ian Paxton they got relegated and yet the seconds went unbeaten all season and uh, we won our league it was, and it was really weird because I, I felt really bad you know just because I was although I was coaching in my team one at that point, I was obviously a big Burnham Muir guy, even though I'd left him to go and play for Melrose and West of Scotland and Edinburgh and all this stuff like that. But that was a sort of my first insight into coaching, and I just I just loved it. When you're a player, all you've really got to worry about is yourself, really getting yourself motivated. But what I enjoyed about the coaching, the team was that you were working with totally different individuals. You had to treat one guy different from another guy. Some guys, you could use the carrot, and other guys, you had to use a stick to, to get the best out of them. And, and I really loved that, that challenge. And then I remember Burnham Muir, got relegated Sean and Packy were, were going to stay there so I thought I'll, I'll look for another gig so I ended up going to Murrayfield Wanderers and uh, the first year there we got promoted in second place the second year we won the, the league that we're in so I think we went from National 3 to National 2 so we, we got a couple of promotions we, we, we won the Murrayfield Bowl so that was a, again and I remember turning up and this is where I, I talk to young coaches now I would turn up at the Murrayfield Wanderers and there'd be 60 players 65 players 70 players and I was the only coach so I was having to coach 70 guys now the back pitch of the Murrayfield was brilliant because we, we could use because they put all the floodlights on you could use different pitches so but that's how many guys were getting the training you know I remember coaching Selkirk years later and um, sometimes we'd get 12 10, 12, 13 players to, to train in the Selkirk and, and it was the same with people some, some weeks it was really good and other weeks it was really so that, that, that really was a, from me starting to coach in, in 2000, 1990, 2000 to now is that the numbers, is it's very obvious now, the numbers have went way, way down. And after Murray, if you wonder, I joined Glasgow Hawks, who won the Scottish Championship twice, won the Scottish Cup once. I then got into the SRU and became the National Under-19s programme manager and then I became a, 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 an academy coach with Glasgow Warriors and I really enjoyed that. Didn't like the kind of way things, certain things were going within Murrayfield. And I've, I know I've said this, I'm not, this is no secret, I've said that, you know, bringing foreign players and journeymen, you know, who I thought were journeymen, taking the place of good young Scottish guys, coaches maybe not getting a, as good an opportunity as, or, or the opportunity I felt they maybe should have been getting. And again, they were bringing sort of foreign coaches in and, and I was told by a member of the SRU staff that, you know, and I was coaching Scotland under twenties at the time, and I was I was kind of told if you know if you're not happy, there's the door, and um, I took the door because I just felt that it just wasn't for me. You know, I wasn't going to I wasn't very good at keeping my mouth shut. I was probably doing myself more harm being there. Um, certainly didn't do my, my career and coaching a lot of good because I kept getting overlooked. I, I'd applied for so many times for the Edinburgh and Glasgow job, and from a coaching point of view, I was very much good enough to do it. But as one guy said, what I've said on the radio at times has went against me. People don't like to be criticised openly. And unfortunately, I couldn't shut my face. And, and I just told the truth. And what I felt was the truth and what I felt was my, my true feelings. And I often criticised people at SRU, often criticised players, often criticised coaches. And, and one of the comments I got back was that players don't want you to coach them because they don't like what you say about them, which is which is really interesting. Which So that was that. And I, I went back to Glasgow Hawks, managed to get them relegated. Uh, so we won two championships for the first time got them relegated the second time joined Peebles got a wee bit of success at Peebles 
We went to Selkirk and got first year at Selkirk, 22 games unbeaten into the Premiership. And we knew it was going to be really tough. We didn't want to play in the Premiership because we knew we weren't good enough, but we had to go and do that. And uh, I had great times. I went to Boroughmuir, coached at Boroughmuir for three years and had no success at all. And then now at GHK, this will be my second season at GHK. So what I've enjoyed you know, coaching is, is the varied. So, you know, being on the borders, or being in Glasgow, being in Edinburgh. And it's just how people are so varied. The, the attitudes... The banter, how some people take it deadly serious and, and other people it's just a bit of a lot. And that's what I love about the game is that we're not everybody's exactly the same, not everybody's as focused about the game. It's you know, there's there's a place for the really get the guys who are really into it and there's a place for the guys who just want to come along on a Tuesday night or maybe even just a Thursday night, or in some cases didn't bother training at all, but they still get a game on a Saturday. And, and that's the fun part of it. That's the human part of it, I think. And it's it's no World Cup finals. I've always said to players it's about having fun. Saturday afternoon is the best time of the week. And in that time, you want to have a funny way to have a smile on your face. The best way to have a smile on your face is to win. And the best way to win is to be better. And that's how you got stuff through training. To be better, you've got to train hard. You've got to take on board what we're saying. Because winning, there is no doubt winning games. I've been in teams that have been relegated and I've been in teams that have won promotion and won championships. And there's no doubt winning the championships and promotion is way better than getting relegated. I was playing under you at Peebles and then I started doing the, the radio commentary when you moved to Selkirk and I could see what you bring to a team is a bit of structure. You bring a bit of direction and it's something that Peebles lacked at the time and you brought such a backbone to the team in terms of the way that you played. And then when you moved to Selkirk, it was similar with a better group of players. But you could certainly see players were playing with a smile on their face as well. But the one thing that I do remember from, well, there's a few things from Peebles, but... I don't know if you remember the time that we'd done a, a club open day coaching. It was a, a, a Tuesday night at the Gates and, and all the age grade players were there and all the senior players were there. And Peter said, right, I need a, a volunteer. So somebody, say Davey Payton, came forward and he was going to be doing the, the drill and goes, right, and he picked one of the youth guys and goes, what's your name? And he goes, my name's Buster. And he goes, Buster, what's your dog called, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that. He's a... Uh, He's still scared. You got a bit of banner, I often, I often think some some coaches. We went down this route of uh, UKCC, um, you know, that, that to get the accreditation to be a coach. Uh, UKCC done this uh, sort of new coaching system, and it was uh, it, it was quite tough because it was, I don't think coaches were natural. I think they were then becoming. So, and I suppose that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make coaches, but sometimes you've just got to have. I, I often had a couple of things that that one. And that's okay. And what I've done in my coaching life is looked at the guys that have coached me, and I've took the good things from some of them, and I've remembered some of the bad stuff which I've tried to. And I'm not very good. I still lose the head with players, and I think that's just the way because we're all human. You know, we we make we make errors and we get annoyed. I've always said my behaviour on the sideline, and people people say my behaviour on the sidelines at times is terrible. And I say to players, well, it's you that causes that behaviour because of the way you guys play. You make me so frustrated that then I have to shout at the referee and give him a hard time. But what I, what I did do is I took certain things from coaches. Um, so Bruce Hay was the, the guy I probably took a lot from. He was my coach at Burham for a long time. Uh, a fantastic guy and, and probably instrumental in getting everything I got out of rugby was through him. And I took a lot from him and, and took a lot from Graham Hogg, who uh, coached me at Scotland. Day. I, hated, I hated Graham Hogg when I first knew Graham Hogg. Couldn't stand him. He didn't like me. I didn't like him. Then I got picked in the Scotland A team, and he was a coach, and we and we kind of clicked. But he had this saying of switch on, switch off, and um, I've always kind of tried to work to that. Whereas you know, there's times when it's got to be about rugby, and you got to be switched on. And then other see other times when you're not doing even during coaching, you can still switch off in coaching sessions. But 
as a player that's known when to switch on and switch off. I always think the good guys know when to do it and they just know what the coach does. But there's always there's always one or two players that just, just take it a little bit too far. And, and you do have a word with them because they can disrupt sessions. But as I've always said, most of the, the, the guys I've coached are amateur. They come to train on a Tuesday and a Thursday night, I assume for a bit of fun as well as can kind of learn to be a rugby player and or to become a better rugby player. So I've always had that sort of thought in my head, we've got to make it fun. We're going to make Tuesdays and Thursdays as much fun as we can. That's why I always do a lot of live rugby sort of stuff, so match scenarios and stuff. That's always been a big part of my coaching. But it's also saying to them, look, here's a, you talk about structure, absolutely. But what I found towards the end of my playing career was that because coaching became professional, that the, the coaches were trying to basically tell you what to do on every aspect of the game. There was none of this, you know, here's a structure to play, but if something else is on the pitch or you see something else, then react and, and play what's in front of your heads up rugby, as people call it. And I'll, I've always worked to that. Always, and I think professional coaches think they've got to control everything because they're full-time and they have to control every minute of everything that goes on. And, you know, I, I, I've worked with players who have said, right, what happens in this scenario? What call do we have for this? And you're like, well, you don't have a call for that. That's just heads up rugby. You turn the ball over, we just do passes and we just play. So just, just little things, but give them basic structure. But don't give them a hard time if they don't stick to that structure. Don't give them a hard time if they see something different and and it um, whether it works or doesn't work is irrelevant. Is that they, they try things. What I've always said is make a decision and stick by that decision. If it's the wrong one, then fine. We just get on with it. Uh, but most of the time, if you're confident enough and you, you go with a decision, then you'll, uh, it'll be a good one. So it's trying to make it fun. It's trying to make it happy. You don't want to go with a coach where you think, I can't stand that guy. I can't be bothered. And, that, and that's, and I, no, and I have been like that to certain people. Certain people don't like you because you don't pick them. Interesting. The guys that like you generally are the ones that you pick. The guys that sort of half like you are the boys, generally the boys that are on the bench. And the guys that can't stand you are the boys that are never in the team. So I understand all that as well. But I, I like to think I've been reasonably honest. I don't lie particularly well. So I tend just to tell people the truth. And, and sometimes people don't want to be told the truth. Players are, you know, if you're good, I'll tell you you're good. If you're not so good, I'll, I'll tell you you're not so good. It's, but it, it's, the whole idea is to try and make you better, weirdly, is trying to make you better. And I want to have fun as well, Dale. That's the other thing. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy my Tuesday, Thursday nights. My, I like having a bit of banter with the players at training. Some guys get away with murder, other guys that you just don't want to get away with anything. But um, and a Saturday for me as well. The Saturday, not as good as playing, but coaching is the next, the next best thing. So it's all about having a smile at five o'clock on a Saturday night or four o'clock or whenever the game finishes. I want to take you back to the Peter Wright then that emerged as a, a young player at Muir and some of the characters that would be at Muir at the time because we're probably looking at what the, the mid-1980s when you were becoming a, a first-team sort of fringe player and, that, and Norrie Rowan would be still around at that sort of time. The, the Hoyt Gala stranglehold in the domestic leagues had sort of gone by then, more or less. And, you know, you were coming into the first team... What were your aspirations at that stage? Did you have it in mind to be, become an international player or was it simply just to become a Burramu regular? I mean, I started playing rugby when I was five. You know, I lived I went to, I lived in Bonnerig, so uh, our local club was La Suede and my front door was, what, 200, 300 yards from La Suede Rugby Club. And it was, I actually was using a babysitting service, I think, initially, because my mum and dad, uh, they did like a wee drink on a Saturday night. Uh, they would go to the Roses Club or they would go to a local, Labour Club or the Miners Club, which were all open in those days. And so they're a bit of a hangover on a Sunday morning. And um, I've got two older brothers and, and 
by Christ, we used to fight. So and even at five years old, five, six years old, and my older brother played rugby. So I basically got packed away. So my mum and dad can get, get an extra couple of hours in bed. It was one of those things where you, like today, parents take their kids everywhere. In my days, it was like you got kicked out the door and you walked up to the rugby club on your own. So that, that was kind of, and, and my mum says from an early age, from sort of six, seven, I, I said I would play for Scotland. I can't remember saying that, but my mum says like that's what all I was saying, I'll play for Scotland one day. And then, and then when I joined, I left last week and Bruce Hay was, he lived in Bonnerig as well. He lived, he lived down near the high street. And weirdly, I always wanted to play for Celtic because I was a massive John Rutherford and Ian Paxton fan. You know, I, I thought Ian Paxton was the, and I still believe one of the best number eights the world has ever seen when you watch him. He was so athletic. He had fantastic skills, and Rudd was just um, again just I think best stand of Scotland's ever had. And, and I'm and I'm really fortunate. I can, I can probably call them both friends now. I, I know them both really well. I had the pleasure of uh, actually playing alongside Ian Paxton. I, didn't, I played against Rudd. I never played with him in the national setup, but I played with Paki in '89. We went to Japan. Paki was just hadn't quite retired at that point, so he was on the tour as well. But Rudd coached me when I was with the national team, and so that was my the idea was to go and was to go. Selkirk. Never thinking how I would actually get to Selkirk. <laughs> so I never put, but then Bruce Hay, who was obviously Borough Muir, he got a hold of me and uh, convinced me that Borough Muir was the, the place to go. And, and you know, Nora Down was the was the tight head prop. David Coburn, who was a Scotland B player, was a loose head prop. So I knew it was going to be tough to get in, but Bruce had always said, look, if you if you play, you're good enough. Norrie's obviously an international class prop, so he, he's, you know, he's a tough guy to, to put out the team. And those years I went in first when I first joined Burnham, I played under 18s and, um, you know, I was playing in the fourths, I played in the thirds, you know, and I played, played in the fourths with a guy called Brian Halliday, who played for Edinburgh and Scotland B, Mikey Bailey, who was an Edinburgh scrum half. The quality of these guys at, at that time, Stuart, was the, the teams, all the teams in the country had six thirds, fourths. This is the sort of quality guys you were playing with. People who played representative rugby either at a level or national level or district level and these guys were playing in the thirds and the fourths so the quality was, was just phenomenal so I'm, I'm playing either under 18s or in the fourths for Burnham Year and then kind of getting the thirds and into the seconds and uh, Norrie was playing for Scotland and I would get into the first when Norrie was away and then when Norrie came back he would obviously he would get put straight back in I was up at Bruce Hay saying well, I had a brilliant game I had an absolutely fantastic how can I be dropped which is like, well, you don't get it. Norrie's just been playing for Scotland. You've you've known you've just been playing for Burnham Year. But what he decided was another young prop at the time, Grant Wilson. So we both came through age grade together. And Bruce made a decision. He said, What I'm going to do is I'm going to play you two guys. So we just I just come at under 18 season. Grant was a year older than me. So I'm going to play you two guys instead of older guys. And uh, Kobe, not happy, but, but, but Kobe kind of accepted it. But, but Norrie left the club. Now, Norrie had been a Boromir guy pretty much all his life. He was a Forester boy originally, but he went to Boromir. He had done a huge amount for the club. He had helped finance floodlights and stands and levelling of the pitch. And Norrie was a big part of that. And But Norrie still felt that he was he was good enough. And he was. He was still good enough. But Bruce made a decision that one of the younger guys went to Edinburgh Ackies. And, and in those days, we, we had... I remember one time we put a seconds team there with 13 district players in the second because we had a lot of North Midlands boys so Henry and Brian Edwards um, they, they came from Alabama they brought a number of guys from Alabama Colin, Colin McCartney um, Derek McLaughlin these were all guys that played for the North Midlands uh, and then you had sort of Mike DeBusk and Kenny Wilson and Graham Drummond and John Price who were all guys that played for Edinburgh so you were in a team full of representatives who won one level or another so, so you were playing alongside guys and you then 
you play against your your Hoyks and your Kelsos, and, and you're playing against all, you know loads of internationals, loads of district players. So the standard was, was massive, and, and you, you learn very quickly to, just to survive because a young eighteen-year-old, eighteen-and-a-half-year-old prop on one side of the scrum and a nineteen-year-old prop on the other. Some of these old that you came up against were, were thinking this is this is easy. You know, this is going to be this is going to be so much fun, and, and you, you learn. So, so that, that was a big learning curve. Uh, training with these guys Tuesday, Thursday it was fantastic because you were the quality of training was outstanding. You know, people, you compare things, don't you? I think we won it in 1991. And um, we compare the teams. Now, I'm biased because I played in 1991, but I looked at the two teams and I reckon none of the team that won in whenever it was 2000 would get in the 1991 team. You know, because I think we were that good. You know, we, we were a fantastically good side. And um, we were well coached. Bruce Hay at the time I thought was one of the best coaches in, in, in club rugby because he was a very honest guy, very hard guy, a real taskmaster. But it was, there was a fairness about him that was, was uh, lacking in maybe one or two other. And he, he was, from the point of view, he picked the best players, which in Scottish rugby hasn't always been the case because we have a selection committee system. Sometimes the best players are not on the team. And you would, you know, people argue, you know, people will. I don't know, there'll be guys out there who say there's better tight head props than me. At the same time, Brian Robertson at Sterling or, or Hooper, you know, they're, they're better than me. But, you know, that, that's the way it worked. But in those days, it was, it was selection committees that picked teams, not coaches. And that's one of the reasons Bruce didn't go much further in the SRU because he refused to, I think he coached Scotland B. And then he got told, this is your team. And he said, you're not picking the team. I'm going to pick the team. And I'm coaching the guys I want to pick. And, was like, well, that's not the way it works. So Bruce pretty much kind of walked away. So that's what you had in the old system. Now the coach has a lot, well, he has all the power, which is, I think, the right thing for it to have. But the level, the level, so you are in the seconds, that level was still fantastic because you had 10, 11, 12, 13 district players in your seconds playing against Hoyt seconds, and it would be the quality would be just as good. And that's something we lack now. The first team games are okay, but the seconds and the third, if you even have a third, the level is, is kind of lost because we have less players playing, we have less quality players. All the good guys are dragged out of the club game, they become academy guys, they're, they're not allowed to play. You know, they're pulled out and they, they go into the gym and spend spend all their season in the gym rather than on the rugby pitch. So I'm I'm glad I played when I did play. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to play now knowing what it was like when I played. I wouldn't really like to play now because I don't, I don't think there's as much fun. Talking there of the, the, the fun side of things, one thing that a lot of supporters are always keen to hear is the the, the camaraderie within a, a Scotland camp or an alliance camp and the arrangement over rooming with somebody. I mean, who who was your best and, and who was maybe your, your most difficult roommates? Is it fair to ask for a... You know the one yeah, that you, you got on best with, and the one because I know, for example, you 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 have room with Will Carling in the past, and, and you said he was quite uh, quite a straightforward guy to, to to room with, no problems at all. I like to think that uh, I wasn't a bad roommate myself. You know, I was I wasn't the tidiest, but I wasn't the untidiest. I didn't snore in those days, but I do now, so I'd be like a crap roommate now. I, I when I played with Scotland, I I think that I mostly roomed with Dave Hilton. They used to do forwards and backs, so they used to put a forward with a back and the captain would get the room himself. So I remember on a first Scotland tour, my first roommate was Derek Turnbull from Hoyt. And I, and I remember I went into the room, was, it was a double bed and a single bed, because Derek was a back row player, so he was quite tall, so he said, I'm taking the double bed because I'm the experienced guy. That, which I, I was fine, he was taller than me. And then the next thing he said is, that, right, you'll make me a cup of tea. 
I'm like, sorry. He says, you owe me a cup of tea because you're the you're the young you're the young guy. And see when you made me a cup of tea, run me a bath. And I'm giving and I'm because I've never been on tour before, so I'd been on tour with under twenty ones, but we're all the same age. So you were you were everybody was an equal. But you were in this scenario where you were you were with guys that had played rugby, which was a non-cap tour because the British Lions were on nineteen eighty nine, they were in Australia, so it was a non-cap tour, but you still had Ian Paxton, Ivan Tukolo. Sticks, Derek Turnbull, Jim Hay was there. So there was a lot of Chris Gray, Damon Cronin. So there's still a lot of, lot of international players there. So I was like, really? Is this, this is how it works? And uh, when I went into the first kind of team meeting, I was asking some of the younger boys, is this it? And they were like, well, just tell me f-. <laughs> Which is <laughs> what I ended up doing in the end. But, but yeah, Dave Hilton, I, I probably room more with Dave. He was he was, my, he was good. I like I liked rooming with Dave. I uh, liked cartoons. You know, I, I didn't mind cartoons. I was quite happy to watch them as well. He didn't snore. So so he was one of the better ones. The, the, the ones that Scott Hastings was a snorer. So then Scott Hastings getting, kept getting a room to himself. The, the Will Carlin story is, is true. Uh, shared with Will, fantastic. Really, really good, really decent guy. But what I didn't know was that that Will's um, father was, was, was quite high up in the, the British Army. I think he was like he was like a lieutenant colonel or a, or a general or something like that, something pretty high up anyway. And, and on that trip in '93, Dewey Morris, the, the English scrum half, he had this really bad habit of phoning people up and putting voices on and, and trying to take the Mickey. The general were New Zealand accents, and it was like a New Zealand reporter from a certain radio station. And but at this time, uh, he phoned. I was in the room, and Will was in the bathroom, and the phone went, and. Uh, I picked up and I goes, yeah, and, and this really, really posh guy says, um, yes, yeah, could I, could I speak to, could I speak to Mr. Will Carling, please? And I went, ah, Dewey, you're, you're Dewey, you're not going to get me on this one, mate. And I stuck the phone down. And then about 30 seconds later, the, the, um, the phone went again and it was the same voice. Uh, sorry, I must have, I must have got the wrong uh, extension there. I'm, I'm after a Mr. William Carling. And I was saying, Dewey, he says, you may get other guys like this, but you're no getting me. And I slammed the phone down again. At which point, Will came out of the bathroom and said, who, who was that on the phone? I said, ah, it's Dewey, just impersonating this really posh English guy saying, is your dad? He goes, oh, right, uh, that could be my dad because he is really posh. He's got the poshest voice. I said, oh, sh-. I said, okay, I said, well, next time the phone rings, well, you answer the phone. So that they, they, honestly, within 10 seconds of me saying that, the phone rang. And Will picks it up and he goes, hello, yeah, yeah, this is Will Carlin speaking. Oh, hi, Dad, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll tell him. I think Dewey's been winding, guys, this is what he's saying on the phone, Dewey's been winding guys up. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell him, Dad, I'll tell him. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell him, I'll tell him, Dad. Right, okay, okay. Peter, you're a f- <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's trying to tell me. So that, that was the story. And, and Carlin, you know, people, everybody in Scotland kind of likes to hate Will Carlin, but actually... I think he's a tremendous guy. It was interesting. I met him when we were in that room uh, in that we were, we were staying in New Zealand. We are chatting and we are talking about it because I'd only had six caps for Scotland at the time. And he played numerous things for England, won Grand Slams, you know, obviously picked to go on the Lions tour and, and, I, and I said to him, you know, what's the best experience you've ever had in rugby? And I was I was expecting him to say World Cup final or, or um, Grand Slam victory with England or winning Triple Crown or beating Scotland by a loads of points or... And he says, no, he said, we trained at, uh, before a Scotland-England game at Murrayfield, we trained at Muir. And I was going to say, oh, Muir, that's, that's my club. He goes, yeah, he says, and uh, I got a tap on the shoulder and I was asked about it politely by this gentleman if uh, I could, you know, if he could speak to him and uh, it would be okay. And I said, he said, the gentleman was Bill McLaren. 
and he says that is the greatest thing that he'd known McLaren. I'd never spoken to him before, and this is the first time. And he says that is the greatest experience I'd ever had in rugby up to that point. He says, you know, the fact that Bill Claren, Cameron was the captain of England at the time, so Bill would obviously maybe want to go and speak to him. But that's the esteem that Carlin held, even though he'd played in the World Cup final, one Grand Slams. He said at that point in time, that was the the, the, the most special moment in rugby so that's what I love about the sport it's sometimes not the obvious thing that people will come up with and you see people on TV you see people acting like they do on the pitch but they're completely different off the park and that's what I like to be well he's a decent guy genuine guy didn't, didn't uh, tolerate the press particularly didn't give them the sort of 24 hour access that some of the captains for national teams did he was very much you can phone me between 9 and 5 that's my office hours you want to speak to me speak to me between that but don't phone me after 5 o'clock and the press took that as him being arrogant and, and not wanting to, to sort of speak to them so that's you know there's and him being England captain you know obviously any England captain of any sport seems to be fair game for the media and he was he was no different but real, really good guy really good character and, and, and there was loads there was there's I can't think of anybody in, in, that I've crossed with in rugby that I would say that I really disliked or would never go and speak to another again. You know, it's, I think I don't, I'm not like that. I kind of accept that everybody has issues on the pitch. We, we all have our faults, but off the park, everybody's been good. Rugby, you know what rugby's like, Stuart. It's a very social sport. It's, it's good fun. Uh, and bad roommates, well, anybody that snores is a bad roommate. Anybody that farts constantly <laughs> is a bad roommate. Um, so that, that could just about be anybody. And I never shared with Kenny Logan. We just constantly talked, so that, that was quite fortunate. But that time it was backs with backs and forwards with forwards, so I never had the pleasure of ever sharing with Kenny. Do you think was once almost strangled by Craig Chalmers on a tour? or Was that in the World Cup in 95 in South Africa? Yeah, well, yeah Craig, Craig just lost it. He just kind of wouldn't shut up, and I think the, the, the door was kicked open by the, the security guys, and there's Chick on, Craig on top of it. Kenny strangling him till he, till and weirdly even though he's getting strangled Kenny still try to talk which is <laughs> just Kenny <laughs> but that was the, that was the characters that we had you didn't have to like it but there'd be guys that I would if I played against them I would I would have no issues stamping on them or punching them and, and likewise them with me everybody thinks you've got if you've got a successful international team we had a reasonably successful international team I mean three years in a row we went for two Grand Slams and a couple of crown, all against England and we lost all the games. So we had a bit of success, but there was there was guys that you really wouldn't drink a beer with, but you know, on the pitch you would, you would die for them because they were in the jersey. But uh, you didn't have to like everybody. I didn't. I always found that weird that everybody thought that you had to like guys in your team, but that was that wasn't the case. There was one or two, not many, one or two, and there was probably one or two that didn't like me either, which wasn't a big issue, but that's just the nature. Always came around club games, the true feelings would come out in a club game and you'd be fighting them and you would say that that's pretty fit of anger you would say exactly what you thought about somebody uh, and you could never take that back because I always believe in it and when that red rage comes on what you say and what comes out your mouth is what you actually believe and once you've said that and it's out open it's difficult then to, to pull back so there's almost like any once it was said nobody ever mentioned nobody brought it up really until the next game it was never mentioned off the pitch but that's the nature of humanity isn't it we like some people and we dislike other people but we can get on. That's the key. Peter, listen, thank you very much for your time today. I want to finish by asking you just one final question, maybe one of the, the hardest to answer. Could you pinpoint one particular moment, either in your, your playing career or, or your coaching career, that stands out? And, you know, that that's the, the ultimate for you, whether it be a, a successful match, winning a, a championship or a cup final, or a moment when you, you discover 
that you're going to be capped to that? What what would you say would be your standout moment? Yeah, there is there is a lot. There is there's no doubt there is a lot. The first time Pool of Scotland jersey of any sort was was uh, Scotland schools under 15s down in Wales against the Welsh schools where we where we stayed with people. Uh, I stayed with Staff Jones. The the lines top. We didn't stay in hotels. We we got farmed out now. Think about it now. Would you farm people out to places now? But the one thing that I know, going lines two was a surprise. Winning championships as a coach as a player, won won a championship with Muir, won a championship with Melrose, um, won Scottish Cups. The, the biggest stick out is my first cap, my first Test match. It was against Australia. The only downside it wasn't at Murrayfield. That would have been that would have been nice and on the cake. But uh, and weirdly, this is the weirdest thing I can remember. First cap like it was yesterday, everything that happened in the game, everything that happened on the build-up to the game, but I can't remember the first time I played at Murrayfield. How weird is that? It's, but people say first time, but first cap against Australia 12th of June 1993 at the Sydney Football Stadium. Yeah, I remember the build-up, I was sharing with Kenny Milne, there was rooming with Kenny Milne at the time, and, and Kenny, Kenny, I said to him, look, first cap, which is just try and remember the whole day, because it'll fly through quick as anything. But try and remember the whole day and there's one specific thing I remember I'll just get on to but I remember having in the morning I had breakfast with Michael Jackson who was a rugby league player from Halifax the, the Great Britain rugby league team shared the same hotel as us and they had played on a Friday night against uh, against Australia shared the hotel and I went down to breakfast in the morning and the only table left sort of seat was a guy this guy Michael Jackson played for Halifax so I had, I had um, breakfast with Michael Jackson um <laughs> So that was quite interesting. But, the, but I always remember when we went out on the pitch uh, at Sydney uh, and we sang the national anthem. The last thing I did, I sang the national anthem, the thistle on the chest, is I grabbed the thistle on my chest and gave it the biggest, tightest grip ever. And uh, so that, that would be, yeah, that, that would be, there would be no moments in, in my rugby career that would surpass that. That, that was, you know, you, you know, I won in Cardiff, I won in Paris, uh, I won at Lansdowne Road. Never won at Twickenham, unfortunately, but yeah, those were those were special moments. But just getting that that first, knowing that you you'd finally represented the, the the big the big Scottish team, you were in a situation where you were one of the best fifteen players in your country. And in, in those days, there was there was a lot of guys could have played. Maybe now you're, there's limited who can get picked. But in, in those days, 1992, uh, there was a lot of quality guys going around. So that, so that would be the. Yeah, and we lost. We were winning at half time, and, and we ended up losing the game. But, but wow, what an experience! And, and against the world champions, they had uh, John Eels, Phil Cairns, Michael Michael Liner played in that game. Nick Farr Jones, um, David Campese played. They were a quality team. They were world champions, obviously. So, yeah, that was that would be the that stick. I forget if I forget about everything else. That's the one bit of my rugby career I wouldn't want to forget about that. That, that eighty minutes that we played against the world champions. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Peter right there, sharing more than a few anecdotes from his playing days and also, again, being very upfront and very honest and quite vocal about the situation that many of Scotland's clubs find themselves in at the moment. It's, it's clearly a, a very difficult time for the clubs, but for the likes of GHK to have Peter Wright as a, a head coach must be a, a, a huge advantage just now, Dale, because he, he does bring an enormous amount of experience when you consider he won over 20 caps for Scotland. He was a, a lion as well. And as he mentioned at the start of the interviews, had a lot of success as a coach 
at that level. I think if he was to start again now, if he was to come into coaching now, I think now would be his era. There's a space for somebody who's got a little bit of a backbone, and, and Peter certainly has that. I really enjoyed my time working under Peter. I've, I've, I've never said to his face, but I think there was a time when Peter came in, I probably wasn't enjoying my rugby anymore. I think it was just something that I just had to do because I'd always done it. And Peter came in and I think gave you that little bit of belief, that little bit of feel-good factor around the club. It was really good and enjoyable working under him. He gave us a structure, he gave us a direction to play. He was honest. He treated players exactly as he said in that interview. He dealt with players when they had to be dealt with. He nurtured players who maybe needed a little bit more attention. The young players he was maybe a little bit harder on and give them a little bit of tough love but he did bring the best out of players and I think after a while player numbers diminished and stuff like that and obviously you're at the mercy of that but he's, he's had a lot of success he also forgot to mention that he did beat people in a shield final for Glasgow Hawks as well so he's had success at, at most clubs he's went to and I like him as a pundit as an ex-player I think his opinion's really valid because it's raw it's honest and I don't think he's swayed by anybody else and I think there's need for more of that I think you listen to a lot of pundits and they say the same stuff or they give the opinions which are probably echoed from somewhere else he's got an opinion Peter and I think it's really good to hear and the interview I, I just I was laughing all the time I just think his stories are funny he's an honest person he's open he's up front and it was uh, it was good to speak to him again so I really enjoyed it yeah, and there's a player as well. He was uh, involved in a, a famous Muir win over Hoyk in 1989 that uh, ended a, an incredibly impressive run of Hoyk wins at Mansfield Park, stretching back more matches than, than any of us can actually accurately remember. But certainly as a, a player, reached the dizzy heights of Scotland and Lions and as a coach has had a great deal of success at club level. Just to finish this podcast, India, we always look ahead to what is coming up. And I think we're relishing the opportunity to see what this Scotland team can do against France. Entomac, we know, is, is going to be out. So France are not going to be completely fully loaded. The same can be said for the Scottish side. But what about this residence influence? We'll call it that. The influence of Van der Merwe, the influence of Oli Kebel, to name but two. Those are players that uh, very recently have become eligible to play for Scotland. And Van der Merwe in particular is just fitting into international rugby as if he's played it all his life. I think he got voted the player of the round. We have been through a bit of a cycle. I think when I first remember watching Scotland, we had likes of uh, Metcalfs, we had the Leslies, Brendan Laney being one as well. They had these players that came through were to plug gaps. And I think we were really bad at bringing players on. I feel we do bring players on now, but there still is a gap. Um, Van der Merwe is obviously, he's came over a bit like Tim Visser, who was committed to play in national rugby and, and Scotland was an avenue for that. Sean Maitland as well, he's done a good job for Scotland. So there's there's a lot of players who have come over and done a good job. There's arguably a lot of players have came over and done a bad job, but it's, it, it's making Scotland a bit stronger. If you look in the front row, when we, we interviewed Gregor Townsend a few weeks ago, we do have our own players. We, we've, we've got Fagerson, we've got some of the best depth in hookers in world rugby with McAnally and Brown. You've got Sutherland on the other side. You've got WP Nell. You've now got Ollie Kebble as well. We've got a lot of players in that front row who are of international standard. So Kebble just adds to that. I think there's, there's got to be an avenue for it. I don't know what your opinions are, but I think that as long as the supporters buy into them and the, the players buy into the, the nation, I think it's it's a good thing as long as it doesn't become 
too prominent, but I think we're able to develop our own players quite well. I think if you go back to the influence of Sean Lanine in the, the Grand Slam winning side of 1990 and how he's continued to be at the, the forefront and at the, the centre of a lot of development. He's had his time, obviously, at Warriors. He's had his time as an age-grade coach. There, there's no question about that. He very much bought into playing for Scotland and giving something back long after he's retired from playing the game and not simply coming over and winning a, a handful of club caps, we'll call them, or making a handful of appearances for a, a professional side before then heading away, you know, and, and really taking a, a lot of, you know, hard-earned Scottish money with them, certainly, because at the moment you do look at the budgets of Glasgow and Edinburgh and th there, there's bound to be pressure on some of their own international players performing at their highest level because if they're not performing for Edinburgh and Glasgow, the high earners, and not all of them are necessarily eligible to play for Scotland, the players I'm referring to, you then have to think about shipping them on because that money could be used to bring through younger, talented players from the age grade, give them contracts, give them the opportunities. We watched Leinster, Edinburgh on Monday night, and you mentioned the likes of Graham's Law and Gamble coming off the bench and getting in, involved in, in, in the game. Rory Darge making his debut. What a place and an occasion for him to do that when it was really a, a backs-against-the-wall situation for a, an Edinburgh side that were up against it. But with the right mindset, that's only going to be beneficial for him in the long run. Yeah, definitely. And I think when you're when you're mentioning that, for all the bad players that have came in and taken money and left, there's always some good ones. Todd Blackadder done a great job for Edinburgh when he came over and really helped improve them. There are other players, not off the top of my head, that have came over and maybe not hit the ground running or the project players that you've brought over from overseas that have been looked at to play for Scotland. At the end of the day, it's a business. And a lot of the time, the SRU or Scottish Rugby, they sometimes do get a bit of flack for that, and probably rightfully so, because it's a supporter-orientated business. But um, a lot of the time it is a business, and if these players aren't cutting the mustard, then they should be shipped off. But if they aren't, yeah, it is, it's stopping these good players coming through. And what would you get, two good Scottish players for the price of a, a really, really good foreigner? It's just something that's it's been part of our game for a while. I know World Rugby are trying to look at that as well. Like say New Zealand, New Zealand are absolutely full of players who aren't originally from New Zealand. Same with Australia. So it is a big, big thing in world rugby, not just Scotland. I think we are quite good at managing it, to be fair. If you go through our first 15 or even our 23 on a match day, most of the players we've commentated on or we've seen in, through club rugby, even some of the pros, they've been maybe subbed out to these club teams and they've earned it the hard way. And Scotland's not an easy ride now. I don't think Scotland is looked at as easy caps, easy money. It's a place where people are coming to try and be competitive now. And I think as long as they buy into that and the nation buys into that as well, it's not a bad thing. It's just as long as it's we've not got, I'd say, 20% of the team being imports. Now, to finish with a prediction, can Scotland make it six from six, another victory against France in 2020 and continue this good form as they progress in the Autumn Nations Cup? I think so, and that's not me being a Scottish optimist. That's me just thinking that we're we're at home. We frustrated them last time. I think the the loss of Entamac is a is a huge blow for France. You look at what's been going on round about you. Twenty twenty has been a strange year. So the football team qualified for an, a major tournament. So why, you know, why can't the national team get six out of six wins? They've not done six out of six for how many years? Going back a long, long way. Yeah, because that that would lay you up to I, th I think seven out of seven. It's never been done for Scotland. So you, I, I've I've got great confidence that, that Scotland are at a position now. I don't watch a game and think that we are going to get cuffed here. 
you look at the Twickenham game when it was when we were thirty-one nil down and we came back. Like it's it's just we've got a bit of a never say die attitude now. The Italy game is almost one where you think that usually that would frustrate us and we would chase it, but they came out and they, they managed the game and I think that is a huge thing. Scotland are now able to control a game and play the game in a position, pinpoint areas of the park where they want to play. Hogwood's getting a lot of flack for going for the corner quite a lot and it rubbed off. Some days it might not. If your luck's in, your luck's in. Prediction? Scotland by six. Scotland, certainly take that, Dale. Yeah. And I have to say that I agree with you. The uh, never say die attitude, particularly in somebody else's backyard, that attitude is only going to bode well for Scottish players with Lions aspirations. Dale, time will tell. We'll see if Scotland can do the business against France. And I'm sure we'll chew the fat when we next meet in our next instalment of the Tattling Scottish Rugby Podcast. From me, Stuart McFarland. And me, Dale Clancy. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.